I've learned that what is true, too, of some people who are sick physically is also true of some people who are sick spiritually. They don't want to get well. Why? Because they lavish in their sin. Jesus said they love their evil deeds and so they will not come to the light lest their evil deeds be exposed. They don't really want to be born again because in the deepest recesses of their heart they cling and cherish sin. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today's sermon is entitled, The Healing at Bethesda. In our study of the Gospel of John, we have so far seen Jesus perform two miracles. Both of these, the changing of the water into wine and the healing of the nobleman's son, were done in a fairly private and intimate environment. Today, as we move into chapter 5, we witness another miracle of Jesus, but this one is performed before a multitude. And this is the miracle that first incites the anger of the Pharisees. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he begins. Take your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 5. We've been working our way through the Gospel of John, and today we come to the third of seven miracles that the Apostle enumerates on here in this fourth Gospel. Now the first two signs, remember we saw that word sign, is a special word for miracle. It means a miracle with a message in the original We've studied the first two signs that were quite private in nature. The servants and the disciples and the mother of the Lord Jesus knew that he was the one who had turned the water into the wine. And beyond that, no one knew. And the nobleman's family and uh, the nobleman himself, of course, and the servants in his family, they knew of the nobleman's son who was healed. But beyond that, no one. But today we come to the third sign the third miracle that John spells out for us, and it's a very public miracle, and it's done to a man who had been in his sickness for 38 years. And it really signals a turning point in the ministry of Christ. The fifth chapter is vitally important because it unfolds for us two critical themes in the Gospel of John. First, it begins to record the bitter hostility of the Jews towards the Lord Jesus that about two years later will result in his crucifixion. Up until this time, the leaders had some questioning, some reservations, some hesitation towards Christ. But we're going to see that all begins to change with this particular event. Their reservations begin to turn to reactions and their hesitation into hostility. A clash will begin that will lead all the way to the cross. But this chapter is also critically important, as we'll look in the two subsequent weeks, because it's one of the strongest, most pointed chapters in all of the Bible to prove the deity of Jesus Christ. I hope before we're done, if nothing else, you'll know how to prove the deity of Christ so that when unbelievers or those cult members show up at your door, you will know how to respond with truth. Let's begin by reading the first 16 verses where we will focus today. Verse 1 of chapter 5, where we left off last time. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up. To Jerusalem, and now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. And these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. 
waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. And a certain man was there who had been 38 years in his sickness. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Arise, take up your pallet, and walk. And immediately the man became well and took up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. Therefore the Jews were saying to him who is cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Take up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your pallet and walk? But he who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse may befall you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Years ago, I served in a church in Rowlett, Texas, and in that particular area was uh, a group of Christians known as the Power Team. And these guys were really unbelievable in terms of what they could do. The head man on the power team had a 22-inch neck. Can you imagine having a 22-inch neck and trying to find a shirt that will fit your neck? Well, he would take that neck and he would literally smash cinder blocks and break it in two. They would take stacks of bricks and judo chop them with their hands. They would take two-by-fours and break them over their knees. They would take uh, New York City telephone books and tear them in half. These were Christian men who were some of the strongest men in the world. Now, the original team, most of those guys have actually died and gone home to be with the Lord. And someday you will die too, unless Jesus comes first. It doesn't matter how strong you may be. Sooner or later, you will die. Now, those guys could tell you how to get physical muscles. Well, our passage of Scripture this morning tells us how to develop your spiritual muscles. And I want us to learn some timely lessons that I believe God would apply to us today. Now, as you can see there in your note-taking outline, on the back of your bulletin, we've divided this portion of Scripture into the three snapshots that the Apostle gives us. In verses 1 to 4, he speaks and describes of a great multitude of people with physical infirmity. In verses 5 through 7, he tightens the focus a little bit on just one person, one man who's signaled out by the Lord. And then in verses 8 through 15, through 16 really, how Christ interacts with him after the healing takes place and the hostility that starts because of it. So let's begin this morning in the first four verses as we consider the multitude who are sick. Verse 1 begins... After these things, that is, after the healing of the noblemen and the events that took place in chapter 4 that we examined last time, after these things, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, let me give you some important background. 
Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. He's been in Cana. He's going due south, directly south to Jerusalem. We'd say he went down. The Bible says he went up because they use up and down, not in terms of north and south, but in terms of altitude. And if you remember, Jerusalem is built up high there on the Mount of Olives. So he went up to Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us that the Jews were celebrating a feast. By a feast, they don't mean a big dinner, but one of the Old Testament feasts that God had dictated. Now, we're not told specifically which feast, and John doesn't tell us. Now, you read Luke's gospel, and he carefully gives us all those events because he's writing with a different purpose, to chronologically put everything in order for us. But if you remember in our opening session of the gospel of John, He's writing for an entirely different purpose, to help us to understand that Jesus is the Christ and in finding that truth that we can experience life in his name. So there's been a lot of ink spilt on, well, what feast is this? Is this the Feast of Purim or the Feast of Trumpets or some other feast? The fact of the matter is we don't know and God doesn't tell us because it's not important for us to know. Otherwise, he would have told us. But his main purpose for going up to the feast was to do a miracle. Look at verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticles. Some of you have been maybe to Bethesda Naval Hospital or Bethesda, Maryland. Well, those places get their name from this particular place. Now if you know American history, you know that our nation's history was thoroughly influenced by born-again Christians. And there's a lot of people today who want to ignore, deny, or obliterate that truth. And how foolish it would be for us as a nation to ignore God, to disdain God, and the things of God. I got a letter this week from a man who listens to us on the radio, and he uh, is in prison. And he, in his letter, was telling me about how the fact that they encouraged the prisoners to go to Bible study and to read the Bible. I thought, isn't that interesting? (laughs) In prison, you can read the Bible, but it's against the law in the public schools. (laughs) You can swear in the Bible in a federal court, but you can't display the Ten Commandments in the same place. And it's really a shame that God has been kicked out of our country because we're going to hang ourselves with our own rope. And yet, those early Americans, those forefathers were not ashamed of their Christian heritage, and many places are named after places in the Bible. And this is one, Bethesda. It literally means house of mercy. And if you've been to Israel, right outside the Sheep Gate, Nehemiah identifies the Sheep Gate on the northern wall, there's this pool. It's actually about 40 feet below sea level where the miracle happened. And this is the same place where Stephen was stoned to death in Acts 6 and 7. So he's speaking of something that is true if his time, notice he uses a present tense, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool. The sheep gate is still standing when John writes this, which tells me Titus had not come in in 70 AD to crush the place and tear it apart which tells me the destruction of Jerusalem had not yet happened, which dates this book before 70 A.D., in spite of what the liberal scholars say. Furthermore, under these five porches, we're told, in these lay a multitude of those who are sick, blind, lame, and withered. Now, that's important that he describes these people in that fashion, because those are the very infirmities that Isaiah describes the Messiah will come and heal. 
There's a lot of miracles Messiah would do, but there are some specific miracles that he has to do that the prophets foretold of. And these people are representative of some of those miracles. Now, had the religious leaders of their day just studied their own scriptures instead of spending all their time studying their own traditions, they would have recognized that Jesus was the Christ. Now, there's a lot of folks who had come to this place. It's kind of like a healing spa, but more than a healing spa. It was a place where miracles happened. We're told here at the end of verse 3 that the people would be waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now, you'll notice if you have the New American Standard, there's brackets from the end of verse 3 all the way through verse 4. You see that in your Bible? All right. Some of you have, how many of you have the New International Version this morning? Raise your hand. All right. You'll see what happened. All of a sudden, the end of verse 3 and verse 4 is totally gone. And it goes from verse 3 to verse 5. If you have the King James There's no brackets at all. Well, let me take a moment to discuss an important issue because you'll see this in a handful of places in the Bible and you need to know what is happening. Remember, when the Bible was written, the printing press had not yet been developed. That came about 15 centuries later. And so when um, people wrote, they wrote on papyri. It was handwritten. It was very expensive. In fact, paper was so expensive, they wrote from margin to margin, from edge to edge. In fact, they didn't even put spaces between the words, and there's no punctuation in the early Greek manuscripts, none whatsoever. It's just solid letters, page to page. Of course, the reader of the Greek can supply in his own mind where the words divide, where they start, uh, what kind of punctuation is implied by the structure of the sentence. Now, sometimes uh, a scribe, when he wanted a copy of Scripture, he would copy the Scripture, and sometimes he'd put his own notes right in there, and he'd just keep writing solid letters, edge to edge, line to line. Now, if you looked in my Bible this morning, you'd see notes in the Bible. I'd probably find something written in your Bible. You'd see here in the fourth chapter that I've noted the distance between Cana and Capernaum and the altitude of those two cities, because that was important to me as I studied that text of Scripture. Now, I have the luxury of putting it out in the margin. They didn't do that. So I might have had a copy of Scripture with my own notes in it. You say, oh, I'd love to have John chapter 5. You got that? Uh, of course, they weren't chapter divisions then, but nonetheless, uh, can I have that portion? And you copied it with my notes. And somebody else might copy it with your notes. And there would be a whole family of manuscripts that developed. Now, let me just say parenthetically, this has absolutely nothing to do with what the Lord spoke of that we call today the inerrancy of the Bible, that the Bible is without mistake. People who say the Bible has errors in it argue it from the original manuscripts, not copies. They're saying that because sinful fallen man wrote the Bible, that their own prejudices, sinful tendencies, etc., came through the pages of Scripture. Where the Lord Jesus taught, no, the Old Testament, as the New Testament writers, were inspired by God the Holy Spirit so that the Scripture could not be broken. They wrote without error. 
But one of the challenges today is we have basically 101% of the Bible. And so you have to determine, well, what was the original 100%? Now, when the King James was written, they only had a certain number of manuscripts. In fact, the only manuscripts they had, it all contained these verses 3 and 4. But as the centuries went by, we have uncovered literally thousands of biblical manuscripts. And so the authors of uh, the, the translators of the New American Standard Version, they include it in the body of the text like the writers of the King James. Why? Because the textual analysis, the textual evidence shows that it's part of the original. Now I had a whole course in seminary on textual analysis and it was fascinating. There's some people who devote their entire lives to this very thing. But most of the time, even though you've never taken a course on it, you can figure it out for yourself just by the context of what's happening. Now again, the New American Standard authors put it in brackets just to let you know that it's not in some manuscripts, but they include it, and they believe it should be included for a number of reasons. Number one, really the context demands that it be included. Think about it. If you admit the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4, then the man's words in verse 7 make absolutely no sense. Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. What's he talking about? The reader wouldn't know. And you wouldn't know that miracles took place at this place where this multitude was. And so you wouldn't understand why this man year after year after year would go here. So really context demands its inclusion. For the angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool, stirred up the water, and whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in. He was made well from whatever disease he was inflicted. And so that's why the multitude is here. Because there were healing powers at different moments in the waters of Bethesda, when the angel of the Lord came down, not the angel of God, but an, an, not the angel of the Lord that we studied a few weeks ago, but an angel of the Lord, a servant of God, a messenger. So this man, like many, was looking, hoping for a miracle. Now that's the multitude who are sick. Secondly, I want you to consider the man who is sighing. Look at verse 5. And a certain man was there who had been 38 years in his sickness. Now that's a long time. That's half a lifetime. Whether he'd been at that pool the entire time, we're not specifically told. In either case, we do know from the narrative that follows that he had been here for a long time. And maybe in the early months, in the early years, he waited with a great sense of expectancy. But he never made it into the water first. We're not specifically told, of course, what the man's problem was, but it appears that he has some kind of infirmity that did not enable him to move or to walk. Verse 8 suggests he had some kind of paralysis, and that's not insignificant. Because one of the signs that the Messiah would do, Isaiah 35 and verse 6, and he, his, is that he would make the lame leap like a deer. And so this man hoped that somehow he would get down there and he would be cured. But the years went by, and I'm sure there was disappointment after disappointment. It appears that his friends and families, they probably gave up on him. 
and they weren't here to help him. And so this man is a fixture at the pool, sitting in his own hopelessness, but somehow he was still looking. And so every day there were these people who were blind, lame, sick, deaf people, withered on the outside. And I'm sure maybe one hoped outsmart the next so that when the angel of God came, they would get into the pool first. Now look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? Now the Bible says he knew that he he had already been there a long time. Now if you have the NIV, it reads a little different. It says when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been there. Now, I told you there are different kinds of translations, and the NIV is trying to make the Bible as readable as possible, but in doing that, they give up on occasion literalness. But the Greek word does not mean learned, it means he knew. That's why in every other single English translation I could find, it always is translated the same. The English Standard Version says he knew that he had been there. The RSV, he knew. The new RSV, he knew. The uh, King James, he knew. The new King James, he knew. The ISV, he knew. Every translation says he knew. Even the paraphrases, which really aren't translations, they're commentaries, and sometimes they totally miss it. Even those translations or paraphrases, commentaries, got it right. And so this is important. Because John is writing to show that Jesus is the Christ. That he's no ordinary man. That he is God-made man. God in human flesh. The omniscient Son of God who knew everything about this man. Jesus saw him lying there and he knew that he had already been there a long time in that condition. And he said to him, next slide, do you wish to get well? Now, knowing everything about this man, out of this multitude who were present, Jesus chose this individual. Unlike the paralytic who had dropped, been dropped from the roof by his four friends, remember that in the other Gospels? Jesus chose this man out of the multitude. Some might ask, well, why didn't he heal all of them? People ask me sometimes, well, Pastor, I don't understand it. You know, when we get saved, when we're born from above, we become children of God. Why doesn't God just heal us all and keep us from all these infirmities? Well, if he did that, why would people want to become Christians? (laughs) Not to get saved and forgiven of their sin that they need to recognize and repent, but to get healed. All for the wrong reason. Yes, the Lord could have spoken to that whole crowd and they would have all been healed. But he didn't come primarily as a healer. He came as a savior. And he healed just certain kinds of people because there were certain kinds of miracles that would authenticate, among other things, that he was indeed the promised Messiah. Now, everybody wants to be well, at least most people. That's why prosperity theology sells so well. These preachers who travel the country and tell you it's God's will for you to be healthy and wealthy, man, they pack their churches, they pack their auditoriums. But then again, not everybody wants to be well. So Christ asks a question. He says, do you wish to get well? Now that's a vital question because he knows the first step towards wholeness is a desire for it. 
And that's a question that he would ask, not just of this man, but really of all of us. He's a representative man. Jesus healed just one out of the multitude. Again, John records the miracles that he records, the signs that he records, because if you remember, that word sign means a miracle with a message. So he heals this man. He chooses this man for a reason. And he asks this man to teach a greater spiritual truth. Do you wish to get well. Now, I've been in full-time ministry now for over 25 years, and I've visited and have prayed for a lot of sick people. And I've discovered that there are some people who are sick physically who really don't want to get well. They are just uh, content to stay in their sickness. In fact, they almost enjoy it. They enjoy the self-pity the attention it brings. Sometimes uh, they use it as an escape to really live life and to be responsible people. I've learned that what is true, too, of some people who are sick physically is also true of some people who are sick spiritually. They don't want to get well. Why? Because they lavish in their sin. Jesus said they love their evil deeds and so they will not come to the light lest their evil deeds be exposed. They don't really want to be born again because in the deepest recesses of their heart, they cling and cherish sin. I spoke with a woman recently who was listening through our radio ministry. And as it turns out, she's in high dollar prostitution. But the Lord couldn't help her, and I really couldn't help her when I spoke to her on the phone because she didn't wish to get well. I said, well, there's some things you need to repent of. I said, you need to quit your job and get a real job. She said, okay, I think I'll do that. And so she told the people she was going to quit. And within one day, her car was gone and her cell phone was gone. Because you see some rich businessmen over there in Hilton Head give her a nice Cadillac to drive and a cell phone to use and a lavish apartment to live in and a pimp who pays her a significant wage. And after a day or two, she said, No, I can't live without these things. You see, she didn't really want to get well. So I couldn't help her and the Lord couldn't help her. But it's a very important question. Do you wish to get well? I spent a good deal of time yesterday, over an hour with a man on the phone with his marriage problems. And I listened to he and to his wife, both believers. I said, do you believe that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you? That's what the Bible says. Not some things, but all things. Yes. The question is, will you let Christ strengthen you? And the question is, do you want to get well? Suppose you're walking along and you fall in a hole. You're down in the hole and you just bemoan that you're in the hole. You complain constantly, I'm down in this hole. My parents didn't tell me there was a hole that I might fall in. Oh, I need to get into a support group on how to live in a hole. I need medication to cover over the pain of living in the hole. That's not the issue. The issue is, do you want to get out of the hole? Do you wish to get well? And we live in a society of victims. And Jesus actually uses a Greek verb that means will. Literally, the text says, do you will to get well? 
Now, Christians all the time argue the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, especially as it applies to salvation and the doctrine of sovereign election. But I want to tell you that divine sovereignty never overplays and overpowers and violates the free will of man. God does not ravish people to convert them. He woos them, but they must choose. God has given them a will. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 012. If you have a question that you would like to ask Pastor Carl personally, you can do that tomorrow between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can also listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.